When you are building something no one has ever seen, something no one has ever imagined, who can you turn to for help? The answer is the other people who are facing the same issues you are. Those product inventing, boundary pushing, design obsessed folks who are just like you. Welcome to AWS Startup Stories. I'm Michelle Kung. And I'm Michael Copeland. What follows are the tools that work, the leadership practices that make a difference, and the lessons you only learn by building a company. And one more thing, what startup jockeys do with a very rare item, their downtime. So let's get to it. We're taking a deep dive into ASEAN in the following podcast, talking with founders and investors from one of the world's fastest growing startup ecosystems. From Singapore to Ho Chi Minh City, Bangkok, Jakarta, and other parts of the region, hear how entrepreneurs are tackling this massive market, what investors are hunting for, and why startups are having such an impact across all dimensions in this part of the world. I'm really excited for this. I've heard so much about you, but let me quickly just introduce myself. So my name is Meher. I am part of a startup team. I'm based in Jakarta, Indonesia. So we work with startups and startup enabling organizations across Southeast Asia. Hazel Savage is the CEO and co-founder of Nisio, the platform that uses artificial intelligence to sort through thousands and thousands of music tracks that are created and published worldwide every day. And, you know, your product uses a combination of deep learning and feature extraction. Museo can comprehend and identify the characteristics and patterns of a track to help curators to narrow the field when you're looking for indicators of quality. And it does the automated tagging and um, categorization of songs, basically. And also, you recently raised funding, I think, towards the end of last year, 2019. You've been in the music industry for 14 years. It sounds like you're truly a savage. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, bizarrely enough, the name savage is is quite common in the UK. So it's not that unusual. But I I definitely, especially when I'm in the US and uh, a little bit in Singapore as well, it's definitely not as common a name. But it it is my real name. But yeah. Yeah, it gets uh, perfect for a music industry role. How does Museo actually help to surface and unearth musical talent, especially for people who are recording from home studios? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's sort of two really important parts to your question there. The first part is how I like to distinguish between artificial intelligence being used in the music industry to improve efficiency and to improve process. And then artificial intelligence to replace creativity, you know, the generative side. Uh, We're definitely the the former. But when it comes to that, you know, I like to think about how the industry's changed. So when I was very first starting in my career and working in a record store, I would be one of the people who would put the CD singles out on the shelf Sunday night, ready for sale on a Monday morning. And on a very quiet week, there would be maybe two. On On a busy week, maybe five or six. CD singles. And that was really it. That was the grand sum total of like Western new music, you know, anywhere between sort of 10 to 30 tracks a month and a very manageable amount. But, you know, what you see now is the global streaming services say they have 40,000 plus tracks a day being released via their platforms. And no, you know, you could hire a thousand people and you still couldn't listen to 40,000 new tracks a day. So that's really the challenge that we're focused on. If there's that volume of music, how do you possibly make sure that everything gets a pass, that it's got the right metadata, that it appears in the right genre playlist, and that great opportunities are found for great artists within that kind of really now large database of music? And it's the proliferation of software to enable artists to record at home, whether it be you know programs on laptops, apps downloadable to mobile phones, You know, you can have a a sort of $100 mobile uh, download free apps and be sort of producing and releasing beats within 24 hours. And this has really led to the explosion of content. And, you know, that number 40,000 on the streaming services is only likely to go up and up. And it's great that the artists have more access than ever to uh, recording and to be able to release music. But it means the challenge on the industry side 
is how do we deal with this huge volume of music? So that's really the challenge that Museo addresses in part. I mean, it's really interesting what you guys do, but, you know, when you consider music, for instance, it's super subjective. People's tastes are eclectic. So how do you train your AI models that are unbiased to follow the certain rules and to cater to different tastes, especially, you know, fascinatingly where you consider factors like language or mood or demographics? I think there's a couple of factors in there in terms of trying to identify bias. So for example, our AI can identify 84 genres. And we sort of pick those 84 genres based on the ones that we're most commonly asked for. They definitely probably skew, you know, slightly sort of global streaming style. But there's a lot that you would expect to find in there, such as rock, electronic, classical. But that said, there are some, say, record labels that we work with who say a a label just releases reggae music. And they don't need the 84 genres. They just need reggae. But they also need the 20 subgenres of reggae that they currently sign and release. And so that's not data that we're going to have immediately. So then we go down the path of, okay, is this worth building something custom? Or can we use what we've already got to help identify the music that you have? Sometimes people choose to go down the custom route, in which case we'll custom train an AI to understand their specifications. That's one way to approach it. The other way, which nicely avoids bias, is if you're using a search tool or if you're using a playlisting, the AI is looking for tracks that are similar to each other, not necessarily similar to anything that we've created or anything that we're defining. So if you as a user of a service was to pick a seed track to start a radio station, the tracks that would be playlisted that would follow, of course, you would want some sort of some indication of popularity on those tracks. But realistically, we'd be comparing the fingerprints of the audio to the original file. And the computer is doing pattern recognition to make those judgments. So there's no kind of external influence, as it were, that's deciding what is similar to what else. The computer is using its own vision to be able to identify. So there are ways to work around bias, but the industry itself is is a challenge in that often people want the most popular music, so music that has the most plays or the most streams. And that can be as impactful as to how somebody responds to a piece of music as to the actual content of the audio file itself. So it's definitely an alchemy combining all of those factors. And do you think that, you know, aside from working around such challenges like bias, how do you feel about just generally the industry, especially in Southeast Asia? How do you see AI being perceived right now, especially since Museo is quite, it's, There's like sort of an advent in music tech in Southeast Asia these days. It's not very common to hear this. So what are other challenges you face being in this industry? I mean, Museo, I consider us, uh, usually talk about us being a music tech company. Um, Although we are are an AI company as much as we are a music tech company. And when we raised our, our fundraising, we became the first VC-funded music tech company in Singapore. Singapore is not somewhere that has a huge history of music technology. You know, for those types of companies, usually London or LA is more expected. But we're definitely not the first AI-funded company. But often, AI can be really diverse across all the verticals. So even the uh, our lead investor has a huge stable of, of companies using sort of the latest in AI technologies, whether it be for construction, whether it be for lifestyle, or, or in our case, for, for music technology. So, you know, I often don't think too much about what the other AI companies are doing in Singapore or even Southeast Asia, purely because we're not generally in direct competition. And when I say competition, I probably mean for customers. Uh, You know, we're in competition with people within music technology. That said, it's fascinating when I meet other founders and I meet other people at a similar life cycle of their company, the comparisons and the things that you're building in relation to the product itself often run a very parallel path. So there's a lot of commonalities 
within artificial intelligence, even if our application in, in music tech is slightly unique or, or completely unique within Southeast Asia. But ultimately, I mean, you're balancing quite a few stakeholders and customers, right? You have artists, you have labels, you have enterprises that you serve with Museo. I think what is really intriguing is ultimately, at, at the end of the day, does Museo actually help with um, what does it mean for artists, especially? Does it actually improve their chances of being heard and found or not? Good question. So I think it's important as well. There's definitely a lot of stakeholders in the industry. For me, it's more about me bringing a technology to the industry that kind of seemed maybe a little bit scary or intimidating to people who aren't really aware of how it can be used. And so I think, you know, we're doing a good job in showing that in the right hands, artificial intelligence can be a force for good. Uh, It's very important to me as well. And I I say this to a lot of our customers, and I've definitely said it before, but I think using artificial intelligence for the benefit of the entire industry, and in fact, even as a whole myself, starting a company that was potentially disruptive, but not destructive to an industry that I've worked in my entire career was really important to me. You know, you see a lot of startups who say that the product they're building is going to destroy the major labels or going to, you know, tear down the existing format. And, you know, no one's uh, managed to destroy those uh, big players yet. So I think it's unlikely. But also, you know, I used to work at a major label and I have many friends and colleagues who work in different parts of the industry. And for me, there wasn't really an attraction to building something that could be potentially destructive to the ecosystem that's given me my career. I wanted to build something that would make things better, that would bring value, that would additionally play into the ecosystem. And so with that, you know, what Museo does and doesn't have to work on is quite important. We're not really, as a company, involved in in licensing or involved in royalty distribution for artists. And there are a great many startups within that space, the the sort of the the direct touch and the redistribution of finances to the owed artists. But really, we're a technology partner who works B2B directly with music companies to improve their inner systems, which ultimately and hopefully has the knock-on effect of improving the situation for artists. So as I say, if you are one of 40,000 uploaded to a streaming service, the chance of you being playlisted or discovered, a lot of streaming services have huge databases of music that's never been listened to or had one stream, then with Museo in place, everything is getting passed through the AI and everything is being, inverted commas, albeit by a machine, listened to and therefore tagged and therefore playlisted and searchable. So that's kind of where we see the benefit for the artist. It's a little bit speed to be to see in that we know that with Museo embedded, the experience and the discoverability of artists is better, but we've chosen the path of working directly with the other music industry companies to achieve those ends. We're just sort of getting started in in our mission with that as well. So it's an exciting time. Do you think that because you have an AI model sort of tagging songs that sort of fit a genre that a playlist would seem homogenous and everything would just sound the same or not really? Good question. I think with the kind of volumes that we're looking at, you know, with 40,000 songs a day on a streaming platform, you do have a, a good chance to avoid anything becoming too similar or repetitive. And that said, we don't use our tags as the the number one way to generate playlist. So this is kind of how the different products work. A lot of people want tags because they have sort of poorly matched metadata. But when it comes to playlisting, as I said, if you use the fingerprint, which has thousands of of reference points in, to be able to create a playlist, you're going to see songs like each other as opposed to just like one of the 84 tags that we've defined. So as I say, yeah, there there shouldn't be too much similarity. Although, again, you know, if the user is extensively skipping all of the tracks that are outside of 
the taste that they're looking for, then obviously the algorithm will learn to feed them something more similar to what they're looking for. So it's a completely unique one-on-one personalized experience with playlisting for each and every listener. And, you know, people will sort of train their own algorithm towards the direction that suits their listening. So hopefully that avoids the sort of the, you know, there's only 84 tags, therefore there's only 84 genres, therefore there's only 84 playlists. When you're using a a fingerprint and and a similarity matching, the permutations are, are endless. That's awesome. And it sounds like, you know, you're redefining the future of music discovery. And I mean, what does it mean for you to be a female CEO and co-founder of the first ever VC funded music tech AI startup in the region? And I mean, are there challenges you face being in Singapore? What brought you to Singapore even? It sounds a lot cooler when you say it. I like hearing it back. I often describe the company as the first VC-funded music tech company in Singapore. But I've heard myself say it so many times, it's definitely less impactful. Sounds much cooler when you said it. And being the CEO of that company is, I I often don't think about it. it. You know, you ask me how it feels, but I don't really spend a lot of time dwelling on it, mostly because I'm spending all my time getting the job done. So I tend not to focus on it. But One of the challenges when we were first raising money was people would say to us, why Singapore? You know, you see this kind of company much more commonly in in L.A. or London. In fact, both L.A. and London have tech incubators exclusively for music companies. So there's communities and groups of people doing music technology in those locations, but not here. And I always was of the opinion that it's a double edged sword and you know, we get to be the big fish in the small pond because there's not many other music tech companies in the region. And so it's easier to stand out and differentiate. And also when it comes to hiring, we get some of the best candidates and we have a really phenomenal team because there aren't so many roles like working for Museo in the region. We really do get the best of the best wanting to come on board. So those are the positives. And then the downsides are, you know, yes, we're a little bit further away from the the ecosystem. 2019, I, I flew to the US six times. I was in the UK five times. A lot of our customers and conferences or even any kind of activity is happening in those two regions, much more so than Asia. But in 2020, flights have been zero. And we're managing to do just as much business via video call. So being in Singapore was almost an advantage because we were already ramped up to do video calls and and video sales. So we weren't reliant on face-to-face. So that was a really easy transition to make. And then the other advantages to being in Singapore are you're right in the middle of everything. It's not so difficult, you know, when flights are back on to get to China, to Australia. Nice. And I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the talent you have at Museo. Um, I'm kind of curious, right? I'm assuming it's quite a small team that you have. How does that sort of define the culture at Museo? And I have to make this fun, but what is the rhythm at work at Museo? Yeah, so we're currently a relatively small team. There's 15 of us. And we're really lucky. I mean, it really is such a great team. I like every single one of us. The trick to me is when you're interviewing people, obviously you you need to interview for talent and skills, but you need to identify for personality type as well. You need to think, can this person fit in with the team? And, you know, am I enjoying this conversation with them in this interview? And how do I think they're going to sit within the rest of the team? A great example, when we were hiring our designer, Nisa, who's absolutely fantastic. People are always always asking me where we get our design done, and, and it's all in-house from our UX UI designer. Um, but, but when we were interviewing for that role, one particular candidate, I remember coming in, and just they were just very aggressive and very asking us questions and then telling us what was the right thing to do, but not in a kind of a helpful or suggestive way, but in a quite a intimidating way. And at one point, they even snapped their fingers in front of my co-founder's face, which was a definite no-no for me. And when I interviewed that person, I just thought, they're not going to fit. They're going to rub people up the wrong way. 
they haven't got the kind of right attitude that we're looking for. Versus when we interviewed Nisa, I thought, oh, she's delightful. Uh, she's going to fit right in. And she just had a calm way about her. She had a respectful way about, about the way she talks. She had a lot of energy and, and passion around her ideas. And, and those are the qualities that we look for in any staff member. I think one of the important things I'm looking for as well is we have a very, very flat hierarchy. We try to take the best of, you know, I'm English, my co-founder is Swedish, uh, but we're based in Singapore. And we try and take the best of all three of those cultures, all the rules that we and, and all the practices that we feel are best in each of those regions and sort of collaboratively combine that to create a work environment. We have very flexible working hours. We have holiday allowance that's more closely aligned with what you see in Europe, which is slightly longer periods. Uh, we've had working from home as an option for the entire time the company has been around. As I say, when I say flat hierarchy, I mean, anyone can ask me for a coffee or a chat, whether it be a music intern, uh, right up to, to my co-founder. You know, I, I want to be accessible and available conversationally for everyone on the team. And I think it really shows, you know, it shows with how well the team get on and it shows in our in our output as well. But also as well, you know, I, I'm slightly older than some co-founders and I've had the luck of having a lot of experience in hiring. So I kind of did know what I was looking for from that perspective. With your team and your employees in general, though, do you find it difficult in hiring, especially considering that you guys are still relatively new in the industry, um, it's not common to have music tech in Singapore. So does it make it more challenging for you to educate and raise awareness about what you do? A little bit. There's sort of two things within that. And so in terms of sort of raising awareness, education is a big piece of what we do. Talking about what Museo does as a company and the products we have available and the fact that this technology exists. I mean, that's relevant to our B2B sales. It's relevant to our hiring. My background before I was uh, a startup co-founder was marketing. So I was a, a head of marketing. Educating and telling the story about what we do is probably one of my favorite parts of the job because it's most aligned with uh, my previous jobs that I've had. So I love the kind of press side of things, talking about us on social media, when and where possible, attending events speaking on panels, speaking to people like your good self, letting people know that Museo exists and what we do is one of my favorite parts of the job. How that then dovetails into hiring, it's a little bit of both. So as I say, we are a smallish startup. There's only 15 of us. Therefore, we could struggle to pay salaries that are comparable to some of like the tech giants that are also in Singapore. You know, we might not be able to sort of outbid financially on some of those really big players. But there are people who may have been weighing up, you know, should I take a, a job at this financial institution, this bank, or should I take the job with Museo? And the sort of the flexibility we offer around hours, around holiday leave, around sick leave, flexibility, but also the ability to join a small team and, and work on something in a really impactful way is attractive to a lot of people, especially as well. You know, we definitely attract more than our fair share of musicians. So people for whom music is a hobby or a passion, I tend to find as well, millennials and, and Gen Z, we want to care about the thing that we work on. It's not enough to have a job and to just make money. We want to like and care about the thing that we're working on. And so if we can attract a lot of staff because it's a fun product and it's a product in the music industry. And if you're passionate about music, you're not going to get many other roles like that. So there's a, there's a few things involved in the, in the decision-making process, but we go okay so far. And I mean, what got you into music? You know, I sense that passion. How would you describe your musical tastes or musical influences? So I, I play guitar. I got my first guitar when I was 13 years old. So I've been playing for a long time, over 20 years, which makes it sound like I should be really good, but I definitely plateaued quite early on. But yeah, so I, I'm a guitarist. And when I was living and working in London, um, I was also playing guitar in an all-girl punk band. And we would play anywhere up to like five shows a week. So playing music 
and being a performer was kind of my first love, my first passion. That kind of translated into only ever doing things related to music and therefore ultimately a career in music. But it sort of became clear to me more than 10 years ago that my talents are definitely more on the business side than they are on the performance side. I don't think I was ever going to be a rock star as much as I might have liked to when I was younger. Although that doesn't appeal to me anymore. That just sounds like really hard work (laughs) and and overexposure. So I I don't really want to be a a rock star anymore. Although maybe I wouldn't say no. Hmm. I'll think about that one. But essentially, yeah, I started out as a performing musician and then realized I had much more talent for the business side of things, whether it was managing artists, you know, booking shows as I used to to do in London and Australia, right through to like working at music tech companies and and companies like Museo. I definitely have had more success in in the business side of things. But that's how I started out. And, you know, hopefully my background and my experience and all the years I spent performing and playing music and and gigging just give me an appreciation of of what artists are, what they go through for their art. But also, you know, it's my first love in terms of music. It's something that's very easy for me to be passionate about. It's an absolute joy to work in the music industry for sure. And so what's next for Museo in 2020? What's next? We gotta yeah. just uh, we gotta keep working hard. We gotta keep pushing it. We we're in a great position. We have a lot of fantastic customers using our products to really prove scale, which is where we're at next. You know, we need to increase those numbers and make sure that more people know about us. They mentioned the education part, and then also you know bringing new products to life and bringing elements of of our own product to the market. So we have a really exciting roadmap for the next 12 months about their new features, new classifiers. So as I say, it's not a, the, you know, the music tags themselves are not static. New genres evolving, but there are ways that we can deepen and broaden the audio that we recognize. There's a, a never-ending list of things to work on and to keep growing the company. I'm excited to do that for the rest of 2020. What's one tool that you can't live without? One tool that I can't uh, live without, one that I'm really excited about, is I have a web application that does time zones. And there are a lot of web applications that do time zones in regards to you can head to a search engine and you can search, you know, like 8 p.m. in Singapore is what time in L.A. And you'll just get the answer back in text form. But there's an absolutely fantastic time zone, uh, I think there's a desktop version of the app. I use it in the web browser. So actually, when I open my browser fresh, this is my default homepage. And essentially, it lets you, it used to be a free product, and it still is free if you want to do up to three time zones. I usually have about 10 time zones on the go. And it is just, it's very hard to describe because it's such a visual product. But essentially, it's vertical colored bars. And each bar represents a time zone. And they are shaded from sunlight to sunset, sort of reds to purples. So you can instantly visually see where the daytime and where the night is. Also, you can edit any part of the text so that everything else is then updated. The default is it's set to Singapore time, my home time. I can type in any time into Singapore and then all of the other bars, all of the other 10 bars, which are maybe Nashville, LA, New York, Berlin, London, Beijing, Sydney, they'll all just reset to, okay, well, if it's eight in Singapore, what time is it now in all those other countries? And they all just auto update, uh, including the day and the time. And then also say someone says to me, hey, I'm in Bangalore. Can you do 9 a.m. my time? Okay. So- Right, I got to I got to figure out what time it is in Singapore when it's 9am in Bangalore, but maybe I'm also trying to get someone in LA on that call at the same time. What I do is I go to the Bangalore vertical beam and I I type in 9am and that's going to auto reset the time in Singapore. And then I go either yes I can make that or no I can't and the LA band is updated as well. So it's just really the most visual way to understand time zones which when you work internationally as I do is completely invaluable. And the amount of people who have seen that I have this as my default browser 
landing page where people see it. I, I, you know, I must have switched another 10 people onto this product because it's so impactful to be able to manage time zones visually, but to be able to do it and to make it look easy, to make it look effortless, not to be like, okay, now I need to add 16 hours on here, but take away eight hours here. And don't forget, that'll make it a different day. I seem often, I think, to people in emails as if I just have a really confident grasp of time zones, but it, it's nothing more than this fantastic tool that, that I use in the web browser. It makes me feel like I can't afford a personal assistant, so these scheduling tools are great. <laughs> they are. Actually, I had one like that the other day. I thought I was doing a phone call with two people. And so I emailed them both about a change in the time. And it turned out that one of the people on the email, it, like, it looked like a person, but it was actually this guy's AI note taker. And he was like, oh, that's not a real person. That's the thing that plugs into my uh, calls to record my notes. And I was like, oh, I've officially emailed an artificial intelligence. We are officially in the future. Yes, you're in the right industry, in the right technology then. What's a leadership practice or routine that you have? It can be something you do with your team on a regular basis. What do you think? Yeah, so I, I thought about this one. And obviously, there's probably a lot of things. There are a lot of things that we do as best practice. And then there's probably a lot of things that I do unknowingly or, or subconsciously that add to my leadership. But one that I wanted to share because it's been really impactful for me and I learned this from a really great HR manager called Eleanor, um, who's also based here in Singapore. It was the idea that one of the things startups struggle with is it's unlikely that we're going to be paying market rate salaries at or above market rate. So therefore, you know, you're asking people to kind of trust you and work with you in return, possibly for more equity, but also with the idea that, that this is something that they believe in and it's very early stage and do they want to come on that journey? But that said, you know, you still need to be treating your team members correctly. You need to be paying them what you can afford, but what's fair. And the practice that I heard from my HR manager friend, Eleanor, was that if for some reason the spreadsheet of all of our team's salaries was accidentally to be made public within the company. So everyone can now see what everyone else gets paid. Who would walk out the door and never come back? And the answer to that should be nobody, right? It might not be that we pay massively above market rate, but no one should look at it and go, oh, well, I was really getting a bad deal. So that's kind of the practice that has been really inspirational to me because I don't think I've ever heard anyone other than the person I learned it from say this. And I feel like the perception often is that companies will just try and get away with what they can get away with. It's important to me that the salaries within our company, whether that be the gender pay gap, whether that be the pay gaps between various functions and teams, shouldn't exist in that it would be offensive if everyone found out. People should, you know, people, nobody in our, as I say, our, our salaries aren't public and, and, you know, unless they choose to tell each other what they get paid, we are certainly not revealing that information as a company. But that doesn't mean that as a founder behind the scenes, I should be trying to get away with disproportionate pay or paying some more less than others for whatever reasons, theoretically, you could get away with. I should be proud that the salaries that we pay our individuals are in line with each other and are in line with what we pay ourselves as well as founders. And that, as I say, if that information was to be known, that nobody should be disproportionately upset. I think this is important because it's fair. And I think this is also important because as a company, it's what you do when, and, and in life, it's what you do when people don't have the full picture. And are you still doing the right thing? Perhaps theoretically, you know, you can get away with paying some people less than others because nobody actually knows what anyone's salaries are. But are you doing the right thing, even though people might not be actively aware of it or actively be able to think about it on a daily basis? And so it's a it's a source of pride, but also something that's important to me that we are doing the right thing, regardless of whether people actively knowing that we are. And I think that's indicative more of how I like to run the company as well. Are we doing the right thing by the artists and by the labels and by the companies that we work with? Are we doing the right thing by our staff? And so that's one of the practices I wanted to share. It's not one I've heard before. You know, are all the salaries 
in line with each other, despite everyone not knowing what they are. I mean, I do, obviously, as the founder. So am I, am I confident that, that I'm doing the right thing for the benefit of everyone else? And that way, you build trust. If your team trusts you, whether it comes down to salaries or whether it comes down to any of your other decision making, you can take that style and that initiative and spread it across everything you do in business. Then you create the right culture and you create the right environment to be successful. So that's um, that's one of the practices that I adhere to in my experience as a founder and, and one that kind of is indicative of larger behavior patterns. Yeah, I think um, I haven't heard that one before and it's quite eye opening. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's, I, I mean, we're lucky to an extent that we're a, only a, a 15 person company. So it's easy to keep an eye on that information. It's a practice I would love to see being adopted by other companies and larger companies, but I'm sure it would be significantly more difficult. You know, you you should be paying people a fair wage for the work done and not just what you can get away with. So that's, that's kind of my approach to business and my approach to how we treat the team. And, and it kind of builds a culture of, of respect and uh, openness. And, and that's really what I'm going for. I mean, yeah, it's quite interesting because, you know, you don't often hear early stage startups thinking about these things or implementing it. It's quite new. And yeah. I, I would like to see that actually more being practiced yeah. across the board. Well, yeah, you say, I mean, it's, it's not something you see with early stage startups. Another thing that sort of frustrates me about some early stage startups is when I see it a startup, they could have five people, they could have 10, they could have 15, usually not not bigger than that. But when I see a startup like that, that has managed to hire zero women, that kind of frustrates me as well. I mean, it's, it's very common for people to hire people who are like them, or for people to hire people who they identify with. But I think, you know, and I've certainly seen it with some of our competitors, uh, you know, one in the UK, I can think of, you know, their team page is, is 10 people and it's all men and it's all white men as well and I just feel like you must be really trying hard to not diversify (laughs) if that's the case because you know us as a company obviously we we are a male female founding team but we have Russian Indian Chinese Singaporean Malay Singaporean British we have Swedish we have American we have so many nationalities and we have different gender and identity representation. And to get to the size that we are and to only have all one gender and all one nationality, I think it does the company a disservice as well or would do a company a disservice. You're going to lack the kind of innovation that comes from variety. And you're definitely going to be lacking in the culture department because women especially bring a great balance and a great energy level to startups that I think you don't see if, you, if you're looking at a single gendered company. And so that's something I'm passionate about as well and, and something that I focus on in terms of hiring with diversity. The results can definitely be seen in terms of the culture that we have and the great people that we have. So I, I would always encourage people to where they can hire with more diversity and then be thinking about, as I said before, with the salary, not what can I get away with, but what's the right thing to do. That's how I like to run my business. I mean, yeah. So again, it's like early stage startups. When I speak to them, it seems, you know, with sort of the dearth of talent sometimes that they're just hiring as quickly as they can without really taking into consideration factors like diversity and inclusion and, you know, fair wage. So it's quite interesting that, you know, for a company that's only been around for two years to be taking into account all of these multitude of factors. Yeah, I I guess for me, it it would be harder not to take these things into account. Maybe it's because I'm a a woman in business and have definitely come up against disadvantages for being female. But to me, it's, you know, as you say, I I do sympathize. I'm thinking about, you know, those companies, as you say, who are just trying to hire, trying to grow fast, and therefore they're not putting any effort into, into diversity or inclusion. And, and I do sympathize with the struggle, you know, if you just feel like it's one extra thing you've got to do and, and you really can't afford the time. But my point would be that you can't not afford the time because if you are rushing so quickly to hire people 
that you're doing it without a thought about what it means to the diversity and the inclusivity of your business, then you're not building a solid foundation on which to grow that business. And again, you know, I am lucky in that I have experience as a hiring manager. I have experience mm-hmm. growing diverse teams and therefore it's it's not a gargantuan effort for me to continue to do so. For maybe a, a very deeply technical founder who's who's not done hiring before, it's a mission, right? It's a lot more work. But having the solid base and building from for diversity from day one is such a better approach than trying to go back and fix it once you've already hired 20 people and yeah. your culture isn't right. So I would encourage people to, to invest that time early on because the benefits that you get for the product, for the company, um, your likelihood of success are all increased. But I, I do sympathize, especially if it's something that I can do without too much effort and thought. It's asking a lot for some of the founders who maybe don't have that experience. But I would say it's the right place to invest energy. I think it does also set the culture or define the culture to a certain extent early on. And it seems like, you know, you have seen the results of having a diverse team. So eventually, hopefully people come to understand that, you know, the benefits of having a diverse team outweigh that of just hiring quickly to fill in a headcount kind of. Yeah, especially the older I get and uh, the more experience I get, the more cantankerous I get about not seeing gender or or any kind of uh, or nationality diversity if i steal into a company and and it's exclusively male leadership team that's a bit of a red flag for me i have to Mm, be honest i agree is there a lesson that you've learned so far along the way a lesson i've learned oh my gosh i mean i've I've learned so many lessons never not learning lessons i think the, one of the most impactful for me, and I learned this when I was 27, and I'm 37 now, so I learned this 10 years ago, and this was maybe one of the hardest things to learn, was that not everyone will like you, and that's okay. So I was sort of convinced up until I was 27 that if I just worked hard enough, and if I was just a nice enough person, that everyone would like me, and that I could make that happen, and that someone not liking me was a failing on my part. The job that I was working in when I was 27, I just realized that there are some people out there who it doesn't really matter what you do, they won't like you. They've decided not to like you without knowing you. And that says more about them than it does about you or about me in this case. And that also, there are so many people in the world that the chances that you can make every single one of them like you is also slim to ridiculous. The most important learning that comes with this is not only can you not make everyone like you, but it also isn't important. It doesn't need to be about you as an individual. Learning that 10 years ago was one of the most powerful things because it enabled me to stop caring whether everyone liked me and to refocus my energies on the things that are important, the projects I was working on, the people that I like and like me back. But that was a that was a tough learning. That was I that was the one that jumps to mind because it's probably maybe one of the toughest lessons I ever learned. That's a very brave lesson. And I think, you know, it applies a lot, especially to the younger generation. Oh, and I'm, a, I'm an oversharer as well. I don't, I'll tell <laughs> you if you want to know, I'm a big sharer. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I think we all learn the hard way eventually that, you know, you can't please the masses all the time. All right, last question. Let's keep this fun. What are you currently binging? It could be anything you're reading, watching, listening to, eating. It could be anything, really. Okay, so I am often binging. I am big into telly. Love watching TV. It's not cool. You're not supposed to say that you like watching telly, but I absolutely love watching the telly. Get a cup of tea on the go. So, and this is quite embarrassing as well because I feel like I've seen most programs. Like I've seen all the big ones that that everyone, you know, is talking about online or or in the cafes. So I've gone back and I'm now re-watching an incredibly old show, The Sopranos. I say incredibly old, it's like 20 years old maybe. But I I've never seen it before and I didn't watch it the first time round. But it is one of those box sets and shows that everyone has seen. So I am doing a, a complete watch through. I'm only on season one so far of The Sopranos. And it's so funny because 
I think it's, yeah, it's 20 years old and it feels like a time capsule, but I like to have something consistently on the go. And I've heard this is one of the greats that everyone talks about. So I'm watching it. So there you go. I'm, a, I'm only uh, 20 or so years late to that party. And then also, I'm when I, what am I also binging? I've got a bit of a reputation in the office as well. I pretty much have the same lunch every day. And I order from this Greek place that does chicken, avocado, quinoa. I'm so predictable. I just reorder the same thing on a delivery app every day. And it's kind of a joke within the team at Museo about how repetitively I just eat the same Greek lunch every day. So I'm a I'm a I'm a creature of habit and I might be a little bit late to the party on, on some TV. Uh, also never seen a single episode of Game of Thrones. So that'll probably be on my to-do list at some point. But yeah, I'm a I'm a big TV fan, so good question. You're like one of the one percent that hasn't watched Game of Thrones. Congratulations. <laughs> Yeah, I just, uh, I think I'm, I'm probably the one percent that hasn't seen it. And then even funnier, uh, on a flight last year, my commercial director, Mac, watched just season eight. So he'd never seen an episode before either, but they had season eight on a plane. So he watched the whole thing. And I think season eight's meant to be the terrible one that everyone says is awful. And I was like, he's got to be the only person in the world who's never watched an episode apart from the entire last season, which nobody rates. Do you even understand anything if you just watched the last season? I don't know. Sense? I was like, why on earth? And he said, well, he said, even I don't think it's that good. And I haven't seen any of the rest of it. <laughs> so, you know, I think he was just going with the flow. But I mean, I certainly, having never seen an episode, was not in a position to uh, to offer any advice. But yeah, I mean, I guess sometimes when you're on a plane, you just choose whatever is available to watch. So I can, I can sympathize. Out of all the options on the flight. <laughs> I love how horrified you are by this. I love that you're like, why would anyone just watch season eight? I'm, and I, I yeah. Max I mean, said, I only watched the season finale as well <laughs> for Game of Thrones. I haven't seen any of the episodes except the last episode. Oh, the so season eight? Yeah, no, but the last episode of season eight. Right, but have you seen the other seasons? No nothing so you've literally just seen one episode yeah I I don't know if I'm better off or worse off yeah I mean you can answer did it make any sense when you've just seen one episode no that's why you keep asking questions and you just pull up (laughs) wikipedia and everyone was like you have to watch this and you were like yeah it didn't didn't do a lot for me it was just the FOMO you know I didn't want to feel like I was the only one sitting alone in the corner yeah well, exactly. So I'm, you know, a bit like I waited 20 years to watch The Sopranos. Maybe I'll wait another 20 years and I'll, <laughs> I'll do an entire watch through of Game of Thrones. You know, I'm, I'm not in a rush. I'm not in any rush. <laughs> That's funny. What's next on your uh, to watch list aside from Game of Thrones? Uh, well, you know, one thing I always do, one thing I always just go back to is I love to second screen. I love to have something on the TV whilst I'm either on my laptop or on my phone. I'm like, Second screening is one of my favorite hobbies. Um, And, you know, but it can't be anything too high. Like, I'm not going to do a Game of Thrones watch through while second screening. So I've seen uh, Star Trek, most of them, all the way through. And I'm on about my fourth rewatch of Star Trek Voyager. So it's a really long series and they're long episodes. And every few years, I'll just do a complete rewatch through because I've seen it all before. It's very easy watching. And this is my favorite series, uh, Voyager, the one with the female captain, Captain Janeway. I very much um, like the the dynamic of the female captain, and I, I'm a big sci-fi fan. And so I like to. This is one. This is one that I always go to. You know, if I'm too tired to watch a full Sopranos episode, I'll put the uh, I'll put the Star Trek on because I've seen it before, so I can always jump back in or I'll I'll remember what happened so yeah that's a that's another one that I always have on the go I don't know if you've heard of Charlie Booker yes I have yeah big client uh all of his stuff on the sci-fi stuff I've been trying to catch hold of watching what's it called dead set I think yeah 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 is that is that the film that he did it's the show about um big brother zombie apocalypse Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I've, I've seen that one. I, I think I was living in the UK when that one came out. Um, but yeah, no, Charlie Charlie Brooker has 
a great way of, of sort of taking, as, as a lot of the good authors do, like Margaret Atwood, creating something sci-fi, but every single part of it is actually rooted in, in a real part of life and something that has happened somewhere before and then extrapolating on what that looks like as a as a, as a kind of a global effort and and I like sci-fi because it's entertaining but it's also very insightful to the world we actually live in so yeah um big fan big fan love love to read love to read sci-fi as well oh that was a lot of really good information it's very new and it's a lot to learn honestly so you're doing some really cool stuff it's very refreshing to have a founder with such different perspectives, doing such different and cool things. Um, just to summarize, actually, thank you again, Hazel, for coming on board. Hazel is the CEO and co-founder of Museo, which is a platform that uses AI. It's a music company, but also uses AI to sort through the thousands and thousands of tracks created every day. You know, she's been in the she's been in Singapore for how many years now? Uh, coming up to five coming up to five. And again, they recently raised funding. There's a lot to learn from the work that's being done at Museo. And are you guys currently hiring as well? We are indeed. Yes, we have uh, quite a few open roles and they're all listed on our on our website at museo.com. So developers and non-developers do get in touch. Awesome. Yes. And um, Hazel is a really cool founder. She has a bunch of productivity tools that she loves. She has a very cool leadership practice of ensuring fair and equitable wages. Um, lots of lessons learned. She's brave, not afraid to not always be liked or agreed with, and currently binging The Sopranos. All correct. That's me. That's, that's going to be my new bio. <laughs> Your new Twitter bio? <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I was happy to get up early this morning for you guys. Always happy to. Thanks so much. Have a good rest of the day and the rest of the week. You too. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. If you are looking to get started on the cloud with AWS, our Activate program provides startups with a host of benefits, including AWS credits, technical support, training, and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com backslash activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.